Welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. We are not a spoiler-free podcast, so make sure you've seen the movie or movies we're talking about before you listen. I'm one of your hosts, Rye. And I'm your other host, Chris. And guess what? We have a special guest today for a very special episode. Our special guest, Sarah. Hello, everyone. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy to be here. I'm such a nerd for your podcast. Oh, thank thanks, you. love. It means so much. Um, and uh, that's so cool. We we love having guests. And I know we've been trying to get you on the show for forever. So welcome. Welcome, Sarah. Welcome to our dreadful space. Thank you. It's, it's dreadful to be here. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> So in case you can't remember from the last episode, today we are doing an Ari Aster double feature. We are talking about Hereditary from 2018 and Midsummer or Midsommar, whichever way you want to pronounce it, from 2019. I'm fucking stoked. I am an Ari Aster fangirl. Like, this is very exciting. I, I, think, that's a, I, I think that's a very good way to start the episode. Like, um talking about our experiences or like our prior prior experience with Ari Aster. Um, I've never seen any of his short films that first got the attention of A24. Uh, admittedly, this is my first time watching Hereditary. Uh, I've seen uh, bits and pieces of Midsommar. So this is also the first time I've seen it in full, but I didn't see it in the, I didn't see the director's cut. So I'm missing some stuff, but I, Largely going to this like with fresh eyes, so I'm so that's, that's where I'm coming at from. Uh, how about you two? I actually had seen one of the short films. Um, honestly, it was so fucked up. I'm really surprised that I went into the other movies with any expectations. But um, I actually saw Hereditary in theaters, and I did not like it the first time. Really, I that really took two watches for me before I appreciated it. I think. I kind of went into the theater look, expecting a traditional horror movie, jump scares, the kind of not predictable plot, but the familiar plot. And what I got was something so completely different that I just wasn't in the right mind space. So how many watches did it take you for you to like really like for it to click for it to appreciate what it is? Because it's definitely not a normal horror film. It's. It's very art housey. It's very avant-garde. It's very specific in, in, in its niches and its uh, quirks. Yeah, it's really unique. Um, I, I watched the second time I watched it. I kind of had a better idea of who he was as a director. I saw Midsummer and then went back to Hereditary. And it was after I saw Midsummer that I really appreciated what he was trying to say and kind of got him a little bit more. He made a little bit more sense because he's truly just that messed up. <laughs> But Midsummer, I'm now on my third rewatch, and I'm looking for any excuse to watch it again. We've come to the right place. Uh, Rai, how about you? I didn't see either one of these films in theaters. I watched Hereditary after it came out on Amazon, because that's how I watched it. And I remember very well, because I was alone in the office when I watched it. I watched this movie at work, which is not a good idea. When you're sitting in an office space and people have to walk by your cubicle. So, and I think I actually made a post about it on the blog right after I watched it. But I was coming at it from a different perspective. I was coming at it from 
the idea of grief and mental illness being hereditary and like genuine horror being hereditary and i took it from a very different perspective than watching it this go around midsummer i saw for the first time earlier this year i think or earlier last year i think it was earlier this year when i spent twenty dollars on a hereditary midsummer bundle and figured well i liked hereditary i'll probably like midsummer too and i loved it and for this episode, I actually watched the director's cut because I wanted to see if I could really remember the difference or pick out the pieces that got added in. It's about 30 minutes of extra footage, so it caps out at very close to three hours instead of two hours and three minutes, I think, is the original cut. Do you catch any new scenes or things that kind of stood out this time? Yes, you can definitely see um, a little bit more of the crumbling of Danny and Christian's relationship. There are things that sort of make a little bit more sense um, in terms of like scenes that had followed or things that they said. Um, some of them are extensions of scenes, um, I guess, that got caught. They just sort of added to everything. But there were some pieces where I couldn't remember if I had seen it before or if I just knew to expect it so it's going to be fun to compare notes especially once we get to midsummer in relation to a couple of those scenes because like i know there's like a whole other ritual that was not seen in the original cut oh yeah yeah oh brilliant that's awesome uh, i just also want to mention that um uh, i know the director's cut is probably part of that dvd bundle it's also exclusively streaming for download on apple tv so i didn't have a description i watched these movies on prime which they're currently quote unquote free um unfortunately i didn't have a chance to watch it but for anyone who listening out there and want to want to pause there's also a hereditary or i'm sorry a midsomar cut uh called like the commentary edition that's available for purchase on prime um, so I'm guessing Ari and some other people on the on the uh, on the cast or on the team um, just talk over the entire film, uh, and I I'm really bummed that I didn't get to watch it. So if some of you dreadfuls are listening to this and you uh, watch that cut, let us know. That'll be really fascinating. Um, I definitely want to rewatch Midsommar or watch that cut, and uh, maybe I'll make a blog post. I didn't watch any cut with commentary or anything like that i will probably do that at some point this week like well like in between editing <laughs> just so i can keep that mindset while i do this but yeah i didn't have a chance to do that either i get very engrossed in midsummer <laughs> that's what it does it's like really addicting his content like you you want to go back and rewatch it again and again and again and i'm not normally the type to want to do that with movies especially the the dance scene i have watched that scene by itself so many times i i love to watch them go through the motions of that entire thing and sort of watch the rise and fall of danny coming into her own and like feeling emotion and like you can see the trepidation with her it's like I'm happy. Should I feel happy? No, I shouldn't. I should feel really shitty. Where is it? Did it? And you can watch her go through all of that. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> uh, I guess before we go too much ahead, we should give a recap for anyone who's 
not listening to this show or this episode and hasn't seen the movies yet um you know so do we want to go in order of which they were released yeah let's, then do, we let's do that start with, okay so starting with hereditary which came out in 2018 uh, the synopsis for this goes as follows. A grieving family is haunted by tragic and disturbing occurrences. No shit. <laughs> wow. No shit. At least not a lot. <laughs> it does. But he, I, I think one of the brilliant things that Aster did with this and with Midsummer, and why I think they both need to be in the same episode, even though they're both about different-ish things, is he likes to take um a situation and like a normal everyday situation and filter it through horror so he took a grieving family grieving with death and filtered it through horror um midsummer is if you ask ariaster it's a book it's a movie about breaking up and you filtered that through horror and i think that that's part of his entire genius of the way he did both of these movies interesting though when you compare the written description to the trailer to the actual movie the stories just do not read the same what you saw in the trailer was not what you actually saw when you sat down for the whole thing they really kind of misled there yes and uh the recap for midsommar a couple travels to Sweden to visit a rural hometown's fabled Midsummer Festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. Yeah, Ryan and I were taking umbrage at, at this description. There's like, yeah, yeah, it's not accurate. <laughs> I don't know if we want it to be. Like, would you have appreciated as much going in if you knew all that you were about to see or does it kind of add something to be completely in the dark when you go into it completely in the dark because like i'm i'm the type of person who loves getting immersed into films and like ari aster like he's he's so skilled in building a world crafting a lore crafting this internal logic that all makes sense and it, it draws you in um with this incredible amount of tension that just keeps building up um and it i was literally on a journey for both of these films and you're always expect like it's like like rye said it was filtering like normal phenomena like family trauma and loss or breaking up um or even like or, or yeah, breaking up with Ms. Omar and just filtering it and just twisting the the, the degrees just off kilter enough, uh, where it just it just gets under your skin and then right at the end, we're like, like especially in the third acts, like things get way out of control, really messed up, and it's like you're just at this point, you're just you're you're trapped, you're in, and you can't get out, and um, I, I you lose you really lose that. I felt like so I didn't watch any trailers i didn't read any synopses and in particular hereditary uh everyone's been telling me about it for like a really long time and i just never got around to watching it um until this episode and i'm really 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 glad i was kept so much in the dark because like when the third act re reveals all the, the real messed up cult possession stuff really started kicking i was like oh my god like i was not expecting it and I had a legit adrenaline rush. I really enjoyed myself watching this film. 
No, it wouldn't have been nearly as effective, I think, that if we were allowed to know every single detail about both of these films, it would not have had the same effect. And I think that it's what takes you by surprise that genuinely is where the horror comes in. <clears throat> because when you start Hereditary, you're watching it for what it says it is, which is a drama with a family going through grief, and that's it. And it's so much more. <laughs> when it and then it escalates so quickly it gets it brings you to where the real horror is because a lot of the the reviews that were negative about these movies were that they were kind of slow to start but what he's doing is kind of like teasing you with something horrific and then when he actually goes all the way and does the thing he lets you sit in that discomfort for so long that it actually makes you more scared like when charlie's head came off in hereditary you sat there and watched her brother process in real time in absolute silence. That's terrifying. When the elders jumped off the cliff in Midsummer, absolute silence, and you got to watch these characters be traumatized. It just makes it feel very real because you're experiencing it them with them. And I think we touched about this at the top of the episode. It's a matter of like expectation. Cause like I feel like uh, a lot I did see like uh, quite a few critics for both these films were were polarized and i feel like they they were they were given this preconceived notion that these were horror films and they are horror films but these are not like your typical schlocky films or your typical slashers or thrillers it's it's very cerebral it's very psychological it's very um avant-garde and you know that's um you know it's just a product of Ari's unique vision is perspective. And I think that, uh, you know, as a, whether you're a critic or, you know, you just got to open yourself out to the, to those new possibilities. And I think, you know, you know, your, your personal opinions are yours, but like, I think it's just so great for the medium of horror as in general to have someone like Ari just really push the boundaries, really test those limits, really. It, I feel like Ari Aster is probably one of the most original uh, horror directors, you know, we have at contemporary times, right? Which is why it really sucks that he said he's not going to do another horror movie for a very long time. I have a feeling that that won't be 100% true. Just based on some of the interviews I've seen him do, yeah, he'll mention that he's done with horror. He even says that he wants to do musicals. Not that I'm going to say no to a horror musical, but his mind is still in a horror place. The way he thinks, the way he processes things. He makes horror movies for horror fans. And I don't even know if he is one personally. No, I think I, I think one of the many videos that I, I watched for this, I think he said that he is a he is a fan of the genre. Um, he was talking about some of the films that uh, inspired Hereditary, and a lot of them were sort of like the old school like ghost stories, like Onibaba, The Haunting. I think he he said Carrie is one of his uh, influences as well. Carrie was another one. So he he likes he definitely his brain's there. I'll, I'll agree with you on that. And I think that let's let's be honest. I think we're going to see a lot of quarantine based horror movies when all this is done. <laughs> um, and whatever happens will happen. I would just I don't know where where you go from there. Like, and I, I think I said the same thing to myself after I watched Hereditary and I was like, where the fuck is he going to go after this? And then he did Midsummer, and I was like, okay, well, where the fuck are you really going to go after this? Because he just, he just keeps climbing the ladder and keeps finding 
the most everyday things and makes them so supremely terrifying. But at the same time, because it's an everyday occurrence, it's relatable. And that also, I think, adds on to the horror because of the way he approaches these movies. You feel a true connection with the families that are on screen. So when these very visceral things are happening to them, that's apart from all the other horror movie elements that are in it, that's also what adds to these things being terrifying. And that also doubles down on what scares you the most. Like, wow, who hurt him? Right. Like, are you okay, bro? It to be the girlfriend that dumped that guy. Yeah. Can you imagine if he ever got married? Well, really what you said about quarantine, about the everyday things being where the real fear is, isn't that quarantine? We're doing the same things a lot of us would do anyway at home, but now it's terrifying because we're not allowed to leave our house. Yep. Absolutely. Someone's going to make a movie about it. It's, it's going to happen. Someone right now is sitting here writing about all of this. Maybe it's Ari Aster. Who knows? And it's going to be horrific. And I can't wait. <laughs> the the movie I dread because it's just it's just born out of ignorance and stupidity in this time is like a horror movie about all like the the anti-quarantine, anti-stay-at-home protests. I could legit see like someone making a horror movie out of that. No, they make great villains, so if someone makes that movie, I'm there. I'll watch it. I'll buy tickets, but only if there's limited seating in the venue, social distancing and all. Of course. Smart. This is why this is why we're so glad to have you here at the show, Sarah. <laughs> I'll say this. One of the things that he said really influenced, especially hereditary, was yeah, it was old school ghost stories and things like that. But I think the thing that he specifically mentioned that uh, made a light bulb go off in my head was it was he specifically highlighted Japanese horror movies and the way they handle the supernatural and ghosts and things like that. And how he said that with such a tone of admiration that, Chris, I was waiting till now to bring this up. At the very end of this movie, there is. This is your last chance. Pause it. Go watch it. There is a, a, a scene, and I know we say spoilers every, every episode, so here it comes. Spoilers. This is, this, is your, this is the do not pass go point. So I know we're jumping ahead and we'll rewind, but I'm bringing it up for this particular purpose. At the very end, when Annie has that piano wire in her hand and she's... How much did that remind you of audition oh oh yeah totally a reference totally it that was clearly that was clearly a nod to audition i heard the noise and all it reminded me of was kitty 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 and i like my skin started crawling and i was like this this is hard i can't do this you just heard like if you remember audition dreadfuls there's this one scene where like you couldn't I mean, yes, they so they showed her sawing, like literally sawing the foot off. But there's this one scene where all you could hear was him groaning and hear like the the friction of of the piano wire against skin. And then you had that same effect, um, like where uh, 
Peter just he's hearing this awful noise, doesn't know where it's coming from, and looks up and then is like, oh my gosh, she's cutting her own neck with the piano wire. And it's like, oh. And it doesn't it doesn't get to me until she starts going faster. And what I think makes it better and worse at the same time is the camera pans out and follows Peter when he throws himself out the window. And you can just, you hear it keep going. And then all of a sudden you hear it stop. And then you hear a light thud on the ground. Because that means, you know, that the head made impact with the ground. And it's all of those wonderful little things that he brings to these movies. That whether you watch it the first time, the second time, the third, I don't care how many fucking times you watch this movie. I... I have a harder time watching Hereditary than I do watching Midsummer. I found Midsummer very cathartic, which tells you something about my mental state. <laughs> but <laughs> I found that movie very relaxing. This scares the shit out of me. I had to remind myself when I was doing research for the podcast about Midsummer that other people watched that movie with a very different lens than we did. So I, at the end of it, I looked at my roommate who watched it with me and I asked her if I'm crazy for thinking that with the exception of the occasional killing, that place looked pretty fun. Like gardens, hang out with people, like live like family. It's a little bit of a communist thing, but you know what? They all seem happy and you only have to pay nine lives every 90 years, especially if you're going to have to jump off a cliff when you reach 70. Yeah. So, uh, hey. Look pretty fucking idyllic to me. I'm all right with it. Yeah, and that's that's a that's really interesting thing about Midsummer. Like, yes, there's terrifying moments, but like compared to Hereditary, Hereditary is just bleak, nihilistic through and through. With Midsummer, you know, it, it, you you you, it's very fairy tale like. Um, it has like these idyllic imagery and visuals and like you know it has actual moments of mirth and laughter and levity and comedy um and but like hereditary is just it's it just rings you with tension and then it just it hammers you in the head when you once you're once you reveal like uh the dad getting burnt alive and possessions and then uh the mom sawing off her own head um, and of course, uh, King Paimon, you know, um, beginning his reign on Earth, and then Hereditary just doesn't have any of that mirth at all. And like, um, and I, I feel like I was, I was watching a YouTuber um, give this commentary. I didn't notice this before, um, and you guys can uh, give Claire to this, but um, I feel like he was mentioning that Midsommar primes you with like lots of hidden clues like lots of like especially with all the runic paintings uh and like all the artwork and all the picture book stuff uh you, you, it deliberately gives you clues of what's gonna happen so like in a way it eases you in into the final climax of the film whereas in hereditary it just hits you in the head like in the third act of what just happened and you're just like oh god oh god uh what are your thoughts on that Watching Hereditary the first time, it definitely hits you over the head in the third act. Um, I'll say that with the videos that I watched uh, before watching Hereditary a second time, there are things that were brought up that you're like, oh, 
yeah, I see that now. Oh, I get this. I see that. The only thing that caught my attention the first time when I thought something was about to go down was the little blue light that flashes in certain scenes. And, but I thought that that was just sort of a tool that he was using. I mean, again, until the third act when you learn better, but I thought that was a tool he was using sort of the way James Wan uses music in Insidious, the very first one. So I just thought it was a cue that there was something that was going to happen, which it was, but I thought that that was your really only hint of things that were about to go wrong. The second time I was paying much closer attention and there are signs all over the movie, especially in the classroom scenes with Peter. Specifically with Hereditary, there were definitely things that I think is the reason I didn't enjoy it so much the first time is because I didn't, I wasn't looking for the clues, but I mean, on the second watch, you can kind of see that maybe Annie was a little more involved or like had some kind of subconscious idea of what was going on. She named her daughter, Charlie, which is a boy's name, which makes me think maybe some part of her did want Charlie to be a boy. And it just kind of, there were things that, didn't stand out as weird to me until I really thought about it in the context of what I had just seen. Uh, She had tried to light her kids on fire while sleepwalking. Maybe on some level, she was aware that there was something weird about her family or about her kids specifically, because I I believe that Charlie was payment from the very moment her grandmother got her hands on her. I don't think that child was ever normal. Watching the movie again, it makes it clear. She clearly had, and it wasn't just the death of her grandmother. There was something off about this kid. She clearly didn't socialize like a normal person. I think it's because she was a very confused male demon. Uh, Yeah, the entire ritual was to liberate Payman from the female body because it preferred or it wanted a male host. Uh, So actually, that's a, that's a, you're blowing my mind, Sarah. That's a, that's a great read. Well, there's also the fact that there were two things. And this is, this is again, things that I noticed the second viewing versus the first one. Annie's mom, grandma, uh, knitted those, like, welcome mats and, like, those, like, special things that obviously had a bigger significance that when that we find out. But Charlie's says charles on it i think that annie named her charlie to sort of keep with the charles but charlie was a girl and then more to sarah's point i think the comment that charlie makes after her grandma dies who's going to take care of me now makes twice as more sense if you're looking at it from the perspective of the fact that she's payment the entire time which i wholeheartedly think she is you also see annie encouraging her preteen daughter to go to a high school party that she already suspects people will be drinking at, which makes me think maybe they don't have the traditional mother-daughter protective, you can come to me with problems kind of relationship. Like, I I know my mother would never have let me go to a a high school party when I was, what, 13? And then, of course, she eats a peanut cake and dies. Yeah, like, um, I mean, the mom, the mom and Peter, I mean, uh, the mom was calling Peter out, like, "Oh, you're gonna there's there, there's definitely drinking going on. Like, you, you don't lie to me about that. But are you gonna drink? And like, she knows like, exactly what's gonna happen at that party. Is gonna be drinking, and 
other teenage irresponsible behavior and um and i and like peter calls out calls that same exact fact uh at the dinner tables like well she didn't want to go i mean uh you're she was putting he was putting the blame and you know that i mean it's a low blow yes but it's also true um and uh everyone was at fault oh yeah but i think i think the the thing is how ingrained this cult was in their lives from the get-go i think is fucking mind-blowing because there are signs all over the movie and even the subtle ones that i didn't get until the second viewing one of peter's friends that he smokes a joint with underneath the bleachers he's in the cult he pops up at the end of the movie does he <laughs> yeah i totally missed that Holy. the guy on the left with the ponytail yeah i i saw that um and his history teacher apparently also makes um i can't confirm that but there were a few people i saw talking about how his history teacher also popped up in the cult later like they were clearly controlling their lives from way before this one of the guys at the funeral that creepily smiles at Charlie, which also backs up Sarah's previous point that she's payment, um, is one of the naked dudes that's in the attic. So they're everywhere. And they're, like you said, they're very much pulling the strings from the get-go. I'm pretty sure that that's why there is a chocolate birthday cake with nuts in it at a high school party. I don't know about you guys, but the high school parties that I got to go to there were no fucking cakes doesn't matter whose birthday it is there were no cakes no one was making cakes so <laughs> like that was also just a lot of nuts yes there's so many nuts and i like i i bake a lot especially during the quarantine and no cake calls for that much like that was shoving it in your face how many times do we have to mention this girl is really allergic to nuts I feel I feel like the pharmacy, the whatever pharmacist they go to, is probably in because like she never had their EpiPen around as well. So yeah. By the way, if your child has a severe allergy to anything and it has an EpiPen for it, you have a fucking EpiPen with you. Or or there's the family just that irresponsible, which it is. Oh, like who goes to a funeral? And doesn't have an EpiPen with them. But I think that's exactly why Charlie made the statement she did. Who's going to take care of me? Clearly, mom has not been present for a while and is not there for her daughter, either because she didn't get to develop that relationship from an early age because her mom took over. But clearly someone's got to take care of this kid because it's not mom. She's not carrying the EpiPen with her. Oh, yeah. And then also, again, grandma was obviously taking care of charlie in the way that we see at the end of the movie and i think there's also something to be said for how unreceptive annie was to her mother and what her mother was trying to do because i think that that's also why the brother killed himself and he wrote like that his mom was trying to put people inside of him. I think that that is, again, this all goes into the whole hereditary nature of not just mental illness, but grief and demons. And this whole, this entire thing talks about any, like everything connected to this family being hereditary. 
So it started with Annie and her brother. And grandma just kept trying. And when Annie even says, I didn't want to have kids. She made me have kids. She told me it was a good idea. She told me I should. And then she kept Peter away from her. And then Charlie was born and she got her hooks into Charlie. And then we have little little payment inside tiny Charlie who cuts the heads off of pigeons. To make toys. Really odd. And Joan had the same toys. Which makes me wonder if maybe Charlie had gone to some of their meetings and had gifted those to those people. We never see anyone interact with the cult members other than Tony Collette's character until the very end. For all we know, Charlie was like their golden child. To assume that that was the case because at the very end, it's Charlie's decayed head on top of the mannequin with the crown that she drew on the pigeon's head in her notebook. Because they, that her face is the only face they've ever attributed to Payman, even if it wasn't gender correct. Exactly. And now they have Peter. So even though Peter is there and even though it's not really Peter anymore, I'm convinced you also see Peter like leave his body before payment swoops in. Oh, that was that was so beautiful. Like he he falls out of the window. You see like his shadow leave, like literally like like it's like a black thing like crawls out of his body or just leaves the grass and it slurs away. And then you see that little white light that will o wisp like go into his body, and then he gets up and he's and he's fine, even though he just fell out of like a three story window. He threw himself out that window. That takes a lot of force. He, like, flung himself out that window. And it's so interesting because when I saw that scene, I didn't read it as his soul leaving his body. I genuinely thought that was just the shadow of his mom or her body floating out the window. Because the next moment we see it going into the treehouse. And regardless of what the purpose of that was, it left me so uncomfortable because there was no other movement after he fell out that window. The whole thing is just so good. Honestly, and also the symbol that they have for payment. I didn't realize how many times that occurs throughout the movie until I watched it a second time. And I think I've already said this, but whatever. It bears repeating. I have a very hard time watching Hereditary. I have a harder time with this than I do with Midsummer, And it's not the violence and it's not the gore. It is the familial relationships of the family. And again, this is what Aster does best. He gives you reality first and filters it through a horror lens and gives you the terror second. And that family scares the shit out of me. Because of all the relationships that they have with each other. And there are some things that occur in that movie that hit home. And that's why this movie scares me more than Midsummer. Midsummer, I find a cakewalk. And I want to go to Sweden after watching that. I do not want to live in this house. (laughs) (laughs) Watching Hereditary. And the miniatures. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's... Oh... Just everything. Oh, mwah. I love the miniatures. That beginning shot messed me up where it was like, it was like a, um, a panning shot and then it melded into the room of Peter uh, and then that became the real room. 
Uh, and then the movie ends at, like it begins where um, it pans out like as if that was a miniature house of its own uh, and like all the figures and all the cultists were just all their miniature painted figures as well. And like the payment idol was just one of Charlie's old cobbled together weird looking toys. It's like, oh my God, this is great. This is so good. And like, um, oh, I love those. Like those miniatures creep me out and I, they're a delight to, to watch. Because they're scary obsessive. Like it's an attempt at control that she obviously doesn't have in her life. And th you're right. The shots where they move in and move out so effortlessly, it kind of makes it hard to tell art from reality. And I don't think Annie can tell the difference either, quite frankly. At this point, there is no therapist in the world who will ever say that recreating your daughter's death will help you. It's just purely messed up. And her husband could tell. He was the only sane person in that movie, and he he got the short end of the stick. Started out as her therapist. Which is another deeply uncomfortable relationship. Yes, yes. I think that to even double down on all of this, the miniatures are sort of twofold in this in this movie. You have Annie working on the miniatures and she imitates life in a sense. She's recreating Charlie's accident, not healthy, but she has her house and her family and all of that. And that's, that's fine. That's seemingly normal. But what I think even doubles down is the miniatures is the fact that there was something else controlling the family from the get-go, like they were in their own miniature, I think just blows the whole thing out of the water. And I think, again, just only makes Esther's mind that much better, but also that much more worrisome. Yeah, that just gave me chills. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> like, I really want to, like, ask him if he's okay. <laughs> like, dude, you, are you okay, buddy? Friend, do you need whiskey? <laughs> like, what do especially you need? <laughs> after you, especially after you hear some of the things he said describing Midsummer. Oh, mm -hmm. boy. Like, I thought I hated some of my exes, but no. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no. That's why I think the film is, like, very cathartic. I sit there with a giant smile on my face the entire movie, apart from when Christian's on screen because it makes me want to punch him in the face. But, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I've i said this before. I clearly have issues, <laughs> and that's fine. Who doesn't but, love? <laughs> that's also true. But, um... Yeah, Hereditary fucked me up. That's why I waited two years before watching it again. I watched it once in 2018, <laughs> and then I was done. <laughs> and now I watched it again in 2020. I will watch it again in 2022. I need time. <laughs> Midsummer, I could watch in two days. I'll watch it later if I really want to. <laughs> I'm ready to watch it again already. I'm actually thinking about buying the commentary version now that Chris mentioned it. <laughs> All right, how about, how about we do a follow-up episode where we all watch the commentary track and commentate on that commentation? Love it. So meta. Uh, I want to switch gears. There's just something on my mind that, you, Ryan, Sarah, you mentioned this a couple times. Um, like the, the, the theme about fate and preordained or, prede or predestination. Um, you know, both of those themes are factor heavily into both of those films. Um, like so obviously like we, we were talking about how 
there's some mechanism or system or whether it's it's uh, a system created by the cults having their fingers in all aspects of society and maybe and like how everything that happened to the family led up to this grand ritual to summon payment um you know so they could do whatever uh ends that they want for like for riches and power and you know they worship satan and he'll give he'll give back and in the same way midsomar there's that there's that uh same sense of fate and predestination where um like for example like none of the characters they 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 had the illusion of of control or agency but they really didn't um like for example like most so much of the film people were on drugs tripping the tripping balls and like, the ultimate act of like you know losing control uh where and then the the cultists or the 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 commune they would say you know this is meant to uncloud your judgment to make you receptive to the true message the true source um and there's other other ways where like this theme of like fate and control control or uh manifest other ways where like um like the fate of all the outsiders the new bloods you know it was all orchestrated because pele um and his brother were sent out um on this pilgrimage on this holy quest to uh and he selected like the 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 exact type of people that would make worthy sacrifices like most of all like mark mark was just like the most culturally sensitive person and um ever just like just a just a bad bad morally just a repugnant person yeah exactly um or the fact that like christian christians like christian's the one where when when the main character becomes the may queen she's given like the the ultimate power over life and death um and it's it's quote unquote inner power to decide who who uh who lives or dies um but at the same time you know like christian's just a straight up bad boyfriend he's just a bad dude he's a jerk and um you know, I, I don't think that's coincidence. I, you know, Pele, that would explain like, Pele was so happy that uh, she would go along to Peter's right because he knew already. I think he, well, way no events. I think he's a very excellent judge of character or reader of character. Like he know that that she's the one. She's gonna be the May Queen, and she's um, and she's gonna be like the crux unto which like this ritual is gonna um, work and succeed. Which is why I think an argument could be made that. Yeah, I know her sister suffered from mental illness, but an argument could be made that something occurred where a match was lit that sparked her sister to do what she did, which got Danny to an even more vulnerable place in her life to get her to go to Sweden. I think that's kind of Aster's calling card is you play a lot of that game of is this clever foreshadowing or was this character set up? Like when even just in the opening scene, the cold open before you even see the title, when her they kind of zoom in on her parents in bed, you see a picture of Danny on the bedside table with flowers behind it looking like a crown. You, you kind of, there's, Pele kind of starts passive 
arguments between Danny and Christian as if he's trying to instigate something. And one of the articles I was reading to prepare for this mentioned that Danny's birthday was the first day of this big festival for them. And the year uh, he had mentioned that in his, in the culture, they have seasons for their ages. The birthday she was having would have put her exactly at midsummer. So I, I wonder if he knew this or if it was that information that kind of inspired him because her coming was a last minute choice but he still says that he was most excited about her coming. Well, you have to think that, so they're all in school right now, right? They're all working to get their PhDs in some fashion of whatever they're studying. So it looks like Pele is either just friends with them because they all go to the same school or he's one of the roommates. Because we never really see much of that apartment, which is fine. So you have to assume that either they live together or they go to school together. So you have to assume that for however long they've been in school, Pele has been a part of their lives. So he has had ample time to weasel his way in and get to know all of these little intricacies. And you sort of, when you start this out, you're hearing, you're seeing Danny sort of unravel and you're seeing it from Christian's perspective. Now, Lord knows I have definitely been in a situation where you're like, no, you know, putting too much pressure on this person and this. And I've, I've done the dance that Danny's doing. I get it. So Aster sort of puts that doubt in your mind like, huh, okay, is she really like not okay? And, and are we really trusting Kristen's POV or is Danny really in the right here and i have to tell you it's almost not a disservice but watching the director's cut you get a little bit more just like a tiny bit more snippets of information that sort of makes sense like make more sense that drag the whole not drag it out but sort of weave um a thicker web if you will of all of this but do you think that kind of speaks to Ari Aster's perspective on it in relationships he made some comment in an interview that he likes to cling to dead things because he still needs them he even compared the burning of the temple at the end of the movie to burning a box of your ex's belongings which I don't I, look I don't usually jump to ritualistic murder when I think about my exes, that's this very special kind of heartbreak that this man encountered. It, it feels like exactly what you were saying before, taking something really in, in the larger picture mundane, like a, a breakup that hurts, but it's clearly over. And then just taking it to the nth degree and making it the worst possible situation. And Christian was a terrible boyfriend. He gaslighted her all over the place. It was awful. And I, never I never rooted for him he was never a character that I wanted to to survive at the end of this he wasn't likable none of them were likable I thought Josh was meh <laughs> I mean let's be honest Pele was the nicest one out of all of them <laughs> Pele was the nicest one I went to college with people like Josh he people people like josh are are super fun and intelligent but they also really think they know it all and they make sure you know it so i clocked him right away and, and the thing about, about josh is like uh he he i know he's he constantly pushes the envelope on like 
like he yes he wants to study the culture but he doesn't appreciate in the way where like i feel like it's not completely sincere like he wants it for the thesis for the 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 glory the gains of like this intellectual pursuit and i so in that way i i didn't think he was completely innocent he also knew what the the ritualistic ceremony was going to be for the Aristupa. he knew what that was when pele mentioned it he knew that people were going to be committing suicide the next day and he didn't say anything that's messed up if i knew i had friends who had recently dealt with really traumatic suicide experiences or even just in general i don't think i'd let any of my friends go into something like that and then be surprised when it actually happens yes so all right so two two points to what chris said from my perspective one of the scenes that you see in the director's cut is an extended version of the car ride um where he says it's going to be a four-hour car ride between the airport and the village that they're going to and a lot of it is just people sleeping and mundane conversation happening in the background and one of the one of the scenes is the camera pans over and there's a book in Josh's lap about Nazism and the Futhark. Or no, it doesn't say Futhark. It says Uthark, actually. And Josh carries it around with him and he says this because it pisses Pele off. And one of the quotes that came from this was, Danny says, see that Pele? You managed to brainwash all of your friends. And Pele comes back with, Josh was already brainwashed when I found him. That's so telling. He's a very good judge of character. And you can see that it's not uncommon for any of those villagers to be very good judges of character. One thing I did want to ask, because I truly just couldn't come up with an answer that I liked on my own. In the first shot, when they're kind of congregating together for the first time, there are a lot of other people there besides Connie and her boyfriend and the group that the whole that we're following. There are a lot of other strangers there. Where did they go? I think they're um in the garden. Really? That's true, because I, I did assume that that was Josh's leg sticking out of the garden, but he had both of them when he got burned in the temple. Josh wasn't burned in the temple. Was he? Wasn't he? Yeah, Josh was there. Um, Mark, his head was stuffed with like, um, stuff with like straw. Uh, Connie was there. Because they needed nine, nine bodies. And they had two from the elders. Or at least that's what I, I assumed two of them were the elders. It's, it's so hard to tell because the dead bodies don't exactly look like the live people, which is accurate for real life, but does make it a little difficult to try to process at the end. They're also transformed. Like they're given like pagan, uh, like nature, like ornaments. And like one of them is just the head uh, on top of like a body, but they stick branches where their arms should be. So one of you just mentioned this and I'm having a brain fart. I think it was Chris that said that um, Josh doesn't necessarily appreciate the culture that he's going into he just wants the phd 
I think what also sort of strikes a chord with that and with how right Pele was about Danny is that when they arrive, they all say, uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to Danny. Everybody says, welcome home. But even before that, when they offer to take their things from them, everybody says like, oh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Whatever. Danny, who doesn't really speak Swedish, says thank you in Swedish. Or is respectful enough to look up something basic, like how to say thank you, how to be appreciative. Exactly. And I think that that also, and I think even Pele to a certain degree even knew that about her. So again, this just all, and I think one of the extended scenes, because I don't know if, I can't remember if it was in the original or not, is during the dancing. Um, Danny and the girl that she's with, they start speaking Swedish to each other. Now, I don't know if you guys saw that or if that was just in the director's cut. I I, I definitely saw that in my cut. We're like, they're just so high to their minds. Like, it, it plays it both ways. We're like, like they're both of them are so high they could they could still communicate in a way that just made sense maybe they're just talking gibberish to each other in real life but totally are because i i actually looked it up because i was curious what if that was actually a direct translation they're both speaking complete gibberish neither they're not actually speaking swedish well there you go but they were talking to each other and in that scene it says they they go back and forth like, oh, you're speaking Swedish, you're doing this, you're doing that, whatever. And she says, well, we understand each other. And she's like, even if we don't talk, we're dancing. That doesn't, that doesn't need, like, that doesn't need a translation. Of course we understand each other. And it just completely goes with this euphoric state that Danny's clearly in, drug-induced or not. She goes through these waves of, like, feeling okay and happy and then doubting whether or not she has permission to feel happy because everyone else has sort of told her like you're overreacting or push this away or you're being this or being that i think that moment when they're dancing you can actually see the moment where they kind of sync up when she says we understand each other it then we can't we cannot obviously talk about this movie without talking about the best scene where all of the girls are crying with her and there's just this like in sync sobbing. You don't get to that point of comfortability with someone. They literally synced up. They were feeling her emotions the same way at the end, they were all feeling the fire burning. They, she like clicked into some place with them. I think it happened in that moment. And to, to add to that, um, you know, the, what we see in the beginning of the relationship between Danny and Christian, um, Danny's so, so racked with anxiety that she gets like little panic attacks about it, um, where she's afraid that she's being too emotionally clingy or she's feels like she's too needy. And obviously Christian's, he's been fully checked out emotionally for like at least a year. Um, they they established in one of the shots um that he's been they're, they're, they're his friends are making fun of christian like you're, you're trying to break off for a year um so in this state before they get to sweden you know it's uh uh sarah you said it like it's like the ultimate 
former gaslighting. Like Danny feels like she she can't relay her feelings, she, or, or that she's no one, she's not being heard, or everyone she feels like everyone's telling her she's overreacting, uh, or her needs, her emotional needs are just not being um, reciprocated or even fully recognized. And then once you get to this community where, like. The, every time like someone dies or like especially with uh the, the two initial elders or that scene um where daddy's and all those other uh ladies are crying with her it's like the first time in her life ever where like she can actually feel and like everyone's sharing in their pain sharing in their emotions sharing in their what are sharing what and whatever they're feeling at the time because it's a commie it's like it's a collective and um that's their dynamic that's their stick um that's their that's how they work because they they're all connected in that way and i think that's one of the ultimate reasons why danny ends up you know staying and uh, and like because it's an answer to all these emotional needs that she's never gotten from anywhere any place uh with her friend group or anywhere in the u.s but that makes me wonder is she trading one extreme form of codependency for another? Um, no, I, I didn't say it was healthy. I just said, <laughs> like, well, uh, th- I mean, yeah, I, I think she, I think I definitely agree that she swung the pend- pendulum in the completely opposite way. Are you saying we shouldn't join cults after we get our heart broken? Oh, no, I'm totally down. We should. Just saying, um, see, I think it's, I think that this also has to, again, I make cracks about my mental state all the time, but listening to what you two are saying, I hear you and I don't not agree. However, (laughs) I'm watching all of this and I'm seeing it not as her going from one extreme to another, but a sense of like validation and relief and, and togetherness and the drugs that they give everybody. The biggest thing of anxiety is your lack of control and the need to get, have as much of it as you possibly can. And it's the fear of being completely out of it. And she, they, they take the drugs and you're out of control. Obviously, you have no, you can't control what your body is doing when you're on drugs like that. So that in and of itself is something that you sort of start to see her lean into in that dance where she becomes the may queen but on top of all of that they have such a huge outpouring of love for her they say welcome home to her multiple times even when they're sitting at the table after she tries to eat the really salty fish she says you're the girl that's sitting next to her says like we're family now like we're sisters and Danny nods in agreement, and I don't know if it's because she's, I don't even think she's really realizing what's happening until after the fact, but that moment where they're all sharing her panic attack together, I cannot tell you how calming that was for me personally, to see a group of people, like, feeling what you're feeling. It felt very validating, and there's nothing refreshing like that. (laughs) You heard it here first, folks. The Left for Dread cult will be up and running. Please comment ah, below ah, if you'd like ah, to join. Yes. <laughs> Wait, no, are, 
big question are we are we worshiping a king of hell or fertility god or goddess or the sun what are we worshiping dealer's choice at this point <laughs> yeah so like i i understand what you're saying and both of you are obviously like very very right but there's no wrong interpretation that's what's great no 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 i just i just think that like you like i see it as validation for danny and like this is something that she has been told that she's or gaslighted into she's overreacting and again with some of the extended and deleted scenes that you see in the director's cut you slowly get to see her become a little bit more not brazen but comfortable in her own skin to stand up to christian in a sense and it progresses it's not right there the entire time she does sort of pitter pack and forth but towards the end it starts to swing more one way and i do think that it's because she sort of feels the backing of a family behind her there's also an extended scene with her and and pele where she's like where he says to her I lost my parents, but I had an entire community to hold me, to comfort me, to to pick me up that I was raised by. You're with Christian, but does he hold you? Do you feel at home with him? That that scene really got to me. That was powerful. That really wrecked me. There, there are also a lot of people who would comment that maybe the hallucinogenics might have had something to do with her journey of self-discovery. Because she does kind of... Going back to the point you made about the the girl at the table saying we're sisters now, at any other mention of family up to this point, Danny's had a full panic attack. This is the first time the word family or sister has been mentioned, and she didn't immediately spiral. She was also seeing flowers breathe. So I'm not sure if we can really say was she really developing, or does she is she achieving some kind of inner. I don't know, I don't do hallucinogenics. What's the thing where people not, you know, where they, they kind of discover themselves through hallucinogenics. Or, or maybe, maybe she's under complete suggestion, whereas like she's tripping out of her mind. She, she feels flowers breathing. She could see like the, the meat move. And so, someone tells her, someone suggests her, hey, we're family now, we're sisters. And she goes along with it, you know? That's completely valid too. I also think it's, it's kind of interesting that... Um... Some of these people, like, we can see their fates, like, staring at them before they get it. Like, um, before Christian goes in to see the main, like, woman, he's staring at a picture of a bear on fire, which is what happens to him. <laughs> right. And and Mark makes the comment, what game are they playing? And the game was called Skin, Skin the, the Fool. Fool. And that's exactly what happens to him. Or the fact that uh, after he pissed on the ancestral tree, the uh, what's his name, uh, Uri Ufi, like the old man, uh, he, he's giving him death eyes, and he, Mark says, "Is he gonna kill me?" And that's exactly what happens. It, it's confirmed to be that same old man wearing Mark's face. Um, so he ended up killing uh, Mark, and then 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 Mark then he killed Josh, wearing his face. Yeah, and then all the drawings where they're sleeping sort of depict everything but the whole story is told if you just look at the stills including that really detailed uh tapestry 
of the woman in the menstrual blood, which so glad that they pointed that out because it was because of that tapestry. I looked to see if there was going to be a cup with red blood in it. And there was. And I I've, apparently some people didn't catch it the first time. I pointed it out to the person I was watching it with and watched their face go, oh, my God. And that's why Christian's drink is a little bit of a different color than everybody else's on the table. His is a little bit darker than everybody else's. And that's why. Just before he finds the pubic hair in his little pot pie thing took that very well by the way he just very casually said i think i ate her pubic hair yeah that's the other thing is once he gets on board with doing his phd just like josh um he gets very nonchalant about like a lot of things like he casually asks questions about incest and um how they pair everybody off together and even like it's no secret that we already learned that they bring outsiders in for procreation purposes to sort of maintain the bloodline of everything. And I like that, that not that Midsummer happens every 90 years. That is, no, that's not the case. Midsummer happens every year. That's why there's a different May Queen every year. This particular ritual happens every 90 years because if they were doing this every year, I feel like more people would have found them. And that community would not be as, yeah, somebody, I feel like somebody would have noticed that tourists keep going to Sweden and go missing. Well, I can tell you there was one note that I made. I may have watched Midsummer a little drunk. Um, frankly, you know, it helped. It helped a lot. And I wrote this down and I'm going to read it exactly as I wrote it. There are so many symmetrical shots. It feels like an emo kid's ode to Wes Anderson on shrooms. <laughs> that's what I got from this movie drunk. I'd say that that's really accurate. Between everything like moving and breathing in this movie, everything that Pelly keeps keeps reiterating is the connectivity of everything. The connectivity of the family to one another, the connectivity of them to the earth and their rituals. Which is why before the dance, when Danny looks down, her feet and the grass have like become one. How the flowers are moving and breathing like with her when she sits down, sort of like welcoming her like, yes, this is your this is your space. You can you can breathe um, when she's sitting when she's sitting all the way down from the table and you see like the meat breathing with the camera, just everything. Just interesting because the kind of connectivity part, the one with nature, one with each other, is really the only accurate depiction of paganism, except for the celebration of Midsummer in the whole movie. Oh, yeah, which I love. And I have to give a lot of credit to Aster for doing this, because we have definitely seen movies where the occult or cults were involved, where they just slapped some rune symbols and called it a sign or called it this or called it that. And I think even when we were watching Blair Witch. Oh, yeah, yeah. I checked out some of the runes that were written on the wall and I'm like, that's not as bad of an omen as everybody says it was. I think the runes were also Elder Futhark in that movie, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Aster said that he used a combination of Elder and Younger, but I think I think Sarah and I were talking and both of us sort of agreed that they were mostly Elder, I think. What I could tell, at least the ones representing people. So the things that were on people's clothing usually represented either their role in 
the village or their role in this particular ritual. Um, like, of course, Danny had one that actually said essentially a journey or a traveler. She was experiencing something. The, the matriarch of the village had one that talked, was about mother goddess and, and being kind of the central figure of, of this place. So they, it's essentially like name tags for them because all of the children here grow up knowing the runic alphabet. And the other symbol that was on Danny's dress, because she has two, um, the other one, now even though it's, I can't find it positioned the way it was positioned on the dress, but the the symbol itself is supposed to represent midday and symbolize an awakening or illumination or completion. Nothing wasn't thought through. Which is just full fucking circle for this movie and for Danny as a character. Yeah, I want Ari Aster to direct everything <laughs> from now on because of his attention to detail alone. That's it. <laughs> That's all I want. And it doesn't have to be a horror movie. Just go direct all the things. Because he clearly knew what he wanted when he wrote this. And I think it was also such a gift as a viewer that he wrote and directed this. And it meant that whatever was on paper was going to be executed the way it was supposed to. And especially for the movies that we're talking about, I think that that is so necessary. And I think if it was any other combination, it would have been lethal and washed out or washed up and wouldn't have nearly had the same effect. The man knows what he's doing. For sure. It kind of goes back to what I was saying about not liking Hereditary the first time I watched it. He doesn't force feed the point to you. He kind of lets you read between the lines and he encourages you to think too hard about something and wonder too hard if this was on purpose because it probably was. And I, I mentioned the idea of the familiar horror story. We may not know exactly who's going to die, but you can probably guess, especially after watching the amount of media that you guys consume, especially for the podcast, you start to see trends and you start to see cliches and that doesn't necessarily make them bad. But what he's done is he's kind of taken the traditional horror movie with Midsummer, and he's flipped it entirely. It's entirely set in daytime. There's no, with the exception of the one scene where she's in the shed and thinks she sees her dead sister behind her, everything is in broad daylight. And you don't expect that going into a horror movie. And I think that's what really makes him so different from what we've seen up to this point. Oh, yeah, because traditionally in horror movies, when it's daytime, you're safe. Nothing really happens to you. Um, there are a couple of movies that sort of break that, but traditionally speaking, it's like the horror comes at night. So you feel safe in the daytime or with the lights on, which is why when they're first tripping, when they first get there and they're like, well, what time is it? And they're like at 9 PM and the sun's still out. You're like, what is happening? And nothing bad happens to them until they actually get to where they're going. And again, it's still mostly in broad daylight there is one ritual that breaks that rule that you i don't think you see it unless you're watching the director's cut it does take place at night you it's funny you see the body of this person but i don't remember seeing this ritual the first time they put like locks and stuff on them and they throw them into a river i don't recall that yeah initially what happens in the scene is it's a tiny child and danny goes to stop the thing and they put the kid down and the kid runs back to its mom 
But the next, I noticed watching it this time that you see somebody else's body wearing what the kid was wearing, which makes me think that they did it anyway and that that was just sort of like a symbolic thing because we know Connie died somewhere. You can hear her screaming. We just don't know how she died. And then when we see her body, that's what she's covered in in the wheelbarrow is exactly what the kid was wearing in a different scene. And she, her body looked like it was like bloated and like water like pruny so that makes a lot of sense does which also explains why we couldn't recognize her necessarily right away that's what i'm assuming how oh that was the other thing you talked about how there were more people that were initially there during one of the scenes don't they throw out meat into a pit and then they walk the rest of everything else out to feed everyone oh, if i recall that i gotta watch it again <laughs> do those initial oh maybe that was the director's cut but are we are they eating people they're probably eating people <laughs> hey look if you're eating people once every 90 years it's okay um that table is also in the shape of a room too yeah, if i read that one correctly and if i researched it correctly it's kind of a representation of family of a unit of um togetherness coming back to that connectivity idea they really are one body of people who feel each other's pain and that symbol's kind of representing that so we, we uh i want to uh turn it a little bit we talked about um paganism and horror movies uh, a little bit before and i was also inspired by this quote that uh jordan peele said about the film uh, he said two things about it uh one it's the most atrociously disturbing imagery he has ever seen on film and two this film uh, usurps the Wicker Man as the most iconic pagan film to be referenced. Um, and while researching for Midsommar, like this is kind of like the first time I've really heard this term thrown around to describe his films called like folklore or folk horror. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts. What, what, um, in your own word, like it's, I tried researching what folk horror is or what's main conceptions but a lot of the definitions or the attempts to define it are really murky so like what is folk horror to you and how does this movie exemplify that and what do you think of peel's comments of it being like the new uh apex predator of pagan horror movies so to speak Okay, so folk horror is definitely my aesthetic. That's like the perfect word for it. Um, I, I think if I had to describe what folk horror sounds like to me, it really draws a lot from traditions and those myths that have been so ingrained that they're things that we reference without even recognizing them. Um, so yeah, I think, first of all, it's Jordan Peele, and he's also a gift to the horror community. So yeah, he's totally right there. This movie kind of, as someone who rec identifies with paganism and who has done extensive research on it, I'm not offended by what they did with Midsummer. I was offended with what they did in the uh, Adventures of Sabrina. I thought that was awful, but I thought this representation of paganism, while inaccurate, they are not still practicing human sacrifice, and there's really no evidence that they ever did. I think what they did was they romanticized it to a point that I don't feel mad at it. I think it's beautiful. I think in a lot of ways it's accurate. 
the maypole was identical to ones you'll find actually in places like Sweden. So yeah, I think it deserves the crown of King of the Pagans, which sounds pretty interesting coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I was gonna say, how does that taste coming out of your mouth right now? <laughs> I think the best example, well, I guess like the most coherent example that I could find about full core in terms of a definition. This is from this article from um bfi.org.uk. The title's called uh, Where to Begin with Full Core. Um, and they themselves state that the term is really muddled because it's so hard. There's like so hard to define. Like they were trying to, it was arguing like where the first actual term, uh, term was coined as well. Um, and like thanks to social media, like the term's been thrown around so many times where it kind of muddled its meaning over time. But, um, there's this one quote from this article that I feel like it gives you a picture that that's helpful at least to get to where you need to be uh it, it, they write quote it is the evil under the soil the terror in the backwoods of a forgotten lane and the ghosts that haunt stones and patches of dark lonely water um so and that that phrase and it connects ties to uh nature and tradition and folklore and, and fairy tales and how yes on the surface things can be beautiful but there's also like a dark there's a darkness underneath it like like i mean it's you know, like for example like that that was just a theme that we saw over and over again life is a cycle there without life there can't be death and death and, and death brings new life and there's like that type of subtle whore in that you know just ari aster just pulled it out even more for us to see and in more radical dimension so i i really appreciated what this article had to say about full core in that way i can't describe it but at least that quote could give me like a visualization that was really helpful there's a vibe there that you can definitely read loud and clear i think that in terms of um like folk horror I think that Midsummer is the next step in the evolution of folk horror. For me, movies like The Blood on Satan's Claw and The Wicker Man and some of the earlier iterations that you will find are what sort of started all of like the genre, that subgenre of horror. And I think if we didn't have those, you certainly wouldn't have an Ari Aster trying to come up with a movie like Midsummer, but I think that since those movies you have had something on an evolutionary scale in terms of folk horror. So you went from Blood on Satan's Claw from 1971 to The Wicker Man in 1973. I'm ignoring the remake. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I never apologize for my love for Nick Cage. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then you have something like The Ritual which was that Netflix movie that we've already talked about on the show. And then you have Midsummer. Uh, they also, this article also mentions other movies that fall under, like newer movies that fall under the zeitgeist. So I've never seen, uh, well, I only see, well, we actually, we only see one of these, uh, you and I, Rye. So like Ben Wheatley's Kill List from 2011, uh, A Field in England from 2013, Paul Wright's For Those in Peril, and then Robert Eggers, The Witch. Oh, I loved that movie. Oh, 
I love the wit. The wit so was so good. good. But again, I think that without the those earlier iterations of what we have now called folk horror, you wouldn't be able to have a midsummer. So I don't think that midsummer is like the end all be all of folk horror. I think it is the most logical and well thought out and well executed next step of folk horror, if that makes sense. Let's hope it's not the last. Let's hope this inspires others to use those stories that already exist and kind of add a creepiness to normalcy. Because there people hundreds of years ago found horror in everything. And we've kind of desensitized ourselves to it a little bit. But thinking that that little girl who talks to frogs down by the pond might be a witch, that's terrifying stuff back in the day. We can bring that back. I really hope that people get inspired by Midsummer and see how it is to do something without washing it out and turning it into a farce and doing it well and showing that it pays to do your homework and do your research. In a way, Astor shows an appreciation for the research that he did through the movie like i like you despite how horrifying these movies are you can feel the love that went into these movies and i hope that somebody watches those and goes okay i'm gonna i'm gonna take this and i'm gonna do something different with it without shitting all over it so it again in that progression of horror and folk horror specifically i there's I, I don't think Midsummer's the last. I, I think it's the best example we have right now, but I don't think it's the prime example. Like, I I mean, I'm, I'm repeating myself now, but without films like The Wicker Man, you wouldn't have had a Midsummer. It wouldn't have been possible. It would have looked like that scene out of the Blair Witch where I'm like, someone just took a bunch of runes, slapped them on a wall because they thought it would be creepy because people don't do their homework. They don't trust the audience to care about those things, but I think we're finding more and more that people do. And there's nothing the internet loves more than a movie they can dissect. So by making it something that can be overanalyzed and talked to death, like this movie is currently, and you know, don't stop. Like the YouTubers making their theories about it. I love it. I, I watch them all because it's inspiring people to talk about it, which is excellent marketing on their point. I mean, look what we're doing right now. Exactly. And it gives us something to do after the movie and still stay engaged with it. Yeah. Just keep doing this shit, man. That's the, that's really what I want right now, especially while we're stuck inside. More. I need more. <laughs> <laughs> I I also had a similar follow-up question. Um, so with Hereditary, it follows like in the steps of hallmarks like The Exorcist or Roseberry's Babies. Um, and I guess what, what, how do you feel hereditary falls within that lineage of like movies involving like secret cults or demon, demonic possession? Um, like, it, I mean, I, I feel like it's, for me, I don't think it's the end all be all, um, movie in, in those type of zeitgeist. I mean, obviously like you, you have like super hard containers like the exorcist and, rosemary baby but like it, it's still like a, i feel it's like it's a strong entry but what are your thoughts on that it's a strong entry but i do think that ari aster's movies deserve a category all their own just because they're so different because of the way he approaches them i would agree but to an extent when uh, it, it wouldn't have naturally come to me but the comparison to rosemary's baby is really interesting 
because there is sort of that that hand of quote unquote God, obviously not God, controlling the fate before we necessarily find out who is behind the curtain. But I think what's different about Hereditary is that it it is in the title. It's that an ancestral trauma that's passed on from person to person. This clearly, it, like, grandma didn't just stumble upon King Payman and said, hmm, let me make a deal for some money. This has been going on for a while. And this is emphasizing that the evil isn't in the demon, the evil is in the people that are passing that down to each other. And that's where it kind of differs from that cult, the scary satanic cult movies that become became really popular. They're not the bad guys in Hereditary. It's the family who's being controlled by them that's doing the evil things. I love that read. Sarah, that's a beautiful, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I'm shook, that's awesome. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that's a great <laughs> that's a great way to end it. <laughs> yeah, so do I. Damn. Okay. Mic drop. There you go. <laughs> Sarah, you're such a great guest. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. You want to come back for the Wicker Man? We're gonna do that in a couple of episodes. Uh, but, but the original or the Both? remake? <laughs> I'll never pass up an opportunity to watch a Nick Cage movie. I, I'm sorry. I'm not going to apologize for my love for, for Nick Cage. No, I don't know. I think I, I really, if I, my roommates have the same mind. She'll watch Midsummer with me over and over and over again. I've created a monster in showing this to her, but it's great because I don't have to be alone when I do it. Because every time you see more. No, watch a horror movie and you'll never feel alone again. You're never alone when you watch movies like this. And I think that that's, that's what I really enjoyed about watching both of these over all over again, is that I let myself notice things that I didn't the first time. Like, obviously, the first time I watched Hereditary, I when you get to the end of the movie, you understand why certain things have been popping up the entire time. But I remember the first time I watched it, and they did that st that still on the um, electrical pole that Charlie hits her head on. It has this the payment symbol on it. And the first time I watched it, I saw it, but it didn't really register with me. I was like, why the fuck are we staying on the goddamn telephone pole? I was like, oh, there's some shit on it. Okay, great. And it wasn't until I got to the end of the movie that I truly appreciated why it was there. And watching these films over and over and over again, you just... It's the little things that you pick up on that you didn't notice before. And I think that that is also part of the joy of watching them repeatedly is all this little shit. And I take his commentary with a grain of salt because I listened to his interviews about Hereditary. I know he said that the cult was responsible for the desecration of the, uh, the grave and all of these terrible things that led up. I don't believe him. I think he's lying. I think Annie had something to do with it. I know he's the director and the writer, but I don't trust him. So basically you're saying that um, Ariaster is your unreliable narrator. I think he kind of set himself up that way. He even says, he's like, I'm not here to be the horror guy, but he's made himself the horror guy. And I think he's kind of doing what he did in the movies. Well, more in Midsummer than in Hereditary. He's luring you into a false sense of security but I don't think we can trust him. 
I don't think we can trust him either, considering the fact that, like we said at the start of this episode, that part of the way he envisioned, like you said, envisioned um, the the burning at the end of Midsummer is like burning a box of your ex's things. Now, I've done that. <laughs> I have absolutely lit shit on fire because I hate people, but... Um, Cathartic. Feels good. And that's why I really like Midsummer and why I can stomach it a lot better than I can stomach Hereditary. But I, 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 I think I agree with Sarah a little bit that Esther has sort of become his own, our, like our own un, unreliable narrator in that sense. Because now Annie's sleepwalking, an argument could be made that that could also be induced and controlled by the cult, which is a whole other conversation. Considering the fact that they both, I think, use drugs to a degree to um, allow influence to be let in. Uh, it was in Joan's tea, I'm pretty sure. And I'm pretty sure it was laced with the pot, which is why Peter had a panic attack. There was a bottle of it somewhere, I think. Or it was highlighted somewhere in Annie's mom's stuff. So they both clearly use drugs for all of that. So Annie's sleepwalking could have absolutely have been puppeteering if you will of of the cult so she probably did dig up the grave and quote-unquote not realize that she was doing it again it comes back to those questions of is this clever foreshadowing or am i supposed to read deeper into it? i think it depends on how much credit you want to give him i give him all the credit he's the best i already said i'm an ari aster fangirl I, I, it's so refreshing because we, Ryan and I all argue about this all the time, or not argue, we aggressively agree with each other all the time that we hate it when like, when like directors like treat the audience really like, like they're idiots. They had like too much exposition, too much over explanation of, of stuff. Like, no, like, like half the fun, half the fun of like going to the movies and boy, and like coming out of it is just like, you just, talk it talk about what happened like with whoever you're watching with or on a podcast or making theories on youtube or going on reddit and like getting to arguments with random strangers the best and that's how you get people talking about a movie long after they see it it's more than just that and that didn't used to exist we didn't used to have these platforms to talk about these things and to talk them to death but now that we do People have to step it up. And that's why I think Ari Aster and Jordan Peele and these, these new directors are so revered because they're bringing something new. They're not giving us the same old stuff. They're giving us something to talk about. I think as long as the new wave of horror keeps going with directors that clearly have the mind of the foundation of horror and where a lot of these things came from so that they can do what they're doing now and... Not necessarily that they that they pay homage to it. I don't necessarily care about that, but you can feel the appreciation for the things that came before what they're creating when you watch interviews with Peel or when you watch interviews with Art Aster. And I think as long as that trend continues, I think horror is in safe hands and not cliche hell. Although my one problem is you still have this habit of reboots and remakes that are that are still in the air. And Midsummer and Hereditary were both very original ideas. And I think that that's why they were so refreshing and, and horrifying to watch. 
So more of that, please. <laughs> I mean, this, is another, this is a whole other can of worms, but like Hollywood is just so, so bereft of original ideas. So we need, we need more auteurs and more, yeah, more visionaries. So thank you, Ari Aster. Thank you for all of that you do. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's my final thought on it is I, the reason I get so excited about Ari Aster and Jordan Peele and these really kind of visionary directors in the horror scene is it feels like an indie movie got a mainstream budget. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I just, I love that, that kind of, we're not looking to the same six white men to make a movie for us or the same eight plots we've been borrowing from for yet another Cinderella story. We're getting really original stuff because we're looking for people outside of what we already have. Jordan Peele was a comedian. No one would have connected him with horror. And yet here he is kind of as a trailblazer. Ari Aster is the same way. He, you, you hear him talk, you don't necessarily see big budget mainstream horror movies. And yet they have the most original ideas of the last few years. I mean, I think it's just credit to A24. A24 is a, a, a film company or production company that's that prides itself on being uh, the forefront of, of new wave films and indie films. And it was A24 took a huge risk, like leading up to Hereditary. They... Uh, A24 sought him out just because they saw his provocative short films while he was um, still like in, still going to college or still still going to school at the American Film Institute. Um, I mean, Hereditary was his first feature film as a director, um, and the budget for that film was ten million. Now, ten million is, sounds like a lot of paper, but in terms of a movie biz, that's that's like a really low that's like a that's definitely on the lower scale of like most uh Hollywood productions and it just um you know they they saw something unique they saw a spark in Ari Aster and um they trusted his vision and trusted what he was doing to speak to an out uh, speak or captivate an audience and hereditary uh, turned out to be it would turn out for like an 80, 80.2 million gross. And still to this day, that's still uh, A24's highest grossing film worldwide. Um, so, I mean, that's, I mean, that's really the future of film. I, I know this is like, this is extrapolating to like really big contests, but, um, you know, I think, I, I think COVID-19 just, yeah, I think it just illustrates now more than ever, like the importance of making art. Um, because, like you know, we're all start. We can't go out. We need we're, we're we need something to train our brains, kick into gear, so it doesn't atrophy. And you know, you know that's where that's where they're true. We need to find the next thing. That's where. Um, that's why I'm really grateful for like A24. Um, you know, for, for writing Ari Aster or just giving Jordan Peele that big shot uh, um, and allowing him to, you know, stretch his wings. Hey, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein while she was stuck inside for a quarantine. So let's see what happens. Oh, yes. So you're saying we sh we will make the best next new hit once we're out of this. I, I, I dig it.
Chris, what would you rate this? Uh, hmm. That's a very loaded question. Um, I would rate Hereditary five out of five Kings of Hell, even though there's actually like at least eight. So maybe eight out of eight Kings of Hell. Uh, Midsommar, uh, five out of five Flower Crowns. I, I really, can, really can't find any fault faults with these movies. Between the two, though, I which one I like more, I really would have to do rewatches. I don't know. I think it's comparing apples to oranges. Uh, I guess with the gut reaction, uh, don't at me, but I think I like Hereditary more because, like, because I like I like the gruesome gruesomeness more, and I love like, you know, I I, I guess I'm I'm also a little bit primer to, I guess I was I, I have like preconceived biases. Like I love demonic possession movies and stuff, and like just like I love Rosemary's Baby, and like you know just the fact like that third act reveal that there there's a secret cult trying to summon satan or like a king of hell i was like oh okay i i'm a hundred percent for this this is great so i gotta be the edgy cool per, or edgy person i gotta like all the demon stuff that's my brand i'm sorry <laughs> and see i was the exact opposite like they're both five out of five for me for completely different reasons but i think midsummer was the winner only because the bad guy was just a regular person who didn't think they were a bad guy. There was no supernatural element to explain it all away. It was not to say that demons or ghosts are, are any less scary or, or real to a lot of people, but human beings, that's the real horror to me. And that's what Midsummer was. I So I think because of how um, hard it is for me to sort of swallow a lot of the familiar relationships with hereditary i have a harder time watching hereditary and i don't think it makes it any less successful than midsummer i think that they're both widely horrifying in their own mind but that being said i do enjoy midsummer more than hereditary but they both get five out of five anything from me I think they're both so well done because Aster does the one thing that Chris and I constantly bitch about, which is he doesn't treat his audience like we're stupid. He gives us credit for what we're watching and what we can figure out and the conversations we can have after it. I mean, look at what we're doing right now. We're in 2020. Sure, we're stuck in quarantine, but we're in 2020 and we're talking about movies that came out in 2018 and 2019 and going down 65 million different pathways and routes with how we feel about both of them. And there's something to be said for that. So, and there's still more to say we're doing, we're clearly doing a bonus episode. (laughs) (laughs) Also, also very that. So again, I I think, yeah. So it just, my hat goes off to Aster and I really hope that despite what he says, he, doesn't completely kiss the horror genre um, goodbye for too long of a time because clearly horror fans are not done with him as a director contributing what he has so far to horror and to the community and to the genre itself. So I really hope that he's not. If he walks away, that's totally fine. I get it. Just don't walk away for too long. Like, come back. I think we're going to need it after all of this. Like. Like, I hope you're writing something now that you're going to film. Not that you're listening, but like that you're going to film after this. 
hopefully we'll see it's okay we're in quarantine we're to write our own magnum opus and then it'll be great starring nick cage chris if i leave you alone to do a horror movie we're gonna have something lovecraftian can you imagine if ari aster directed a lovecraft movie you would die yes yes okay oh there you go please inject that into my veins right now (laughs) go tweet (laughs) i'm kidding don't (laughs) okay that would be chris's dream come true i feel like yes (laughs) don't tempt fate please don't tempt i'm so easy to please (laughs) on that note Thank you for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Everything helps. You can listen to us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify every Friday. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Dread Pod. You can find us on Facebook, and you can check us out on our website at leftfordread.com. And we want to thank our special guest today, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything you want to pitch or plug? This was such a pleasure. Uh, watch more horror movies. It makes quarantine go by quicker. Well, you heard it from Sarah herself. <laughs> you're, you're stuck in quarantine anyway. Watch more horror movies. Don't forget, <laughs> stay dreadful! Oh.